Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. This is Wall Builders. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution coach and a former Texas legislator, serving here beside David and Tim Barton. David, of course, America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders, and Tim Barton, national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. Check us out at wallbuilderslive.com. That's the radio site. And then also go over to wallbuilders.com to get your Christmas presents, make your end of year donation, and just generally get inspired to help us save freedom. All of that today at our website, wallbuilders.com, and also at wallbuilderslive.com. We're going to pick up right where we left off yesterday. We had Mike Ferris with us uh, speaking at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. Great presentation on how we're going to save the republic and how, how important it is for all of us to get engaged and uh, certainly um, turn around this indoctrination of the next generation. Here's Mike Ferris at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. We decide how often and where your kids go to church. Parents need to decide that question. Um, who makes medical decisions for kids? Uh, I, uh, you know, there are lots of um, transgender issues are coming up on, uh, you know, by the boatload nowadays. Uh, I heard a, a, an expert on this topic, a gay psychiatrist, uh, who said, uh, has treated transgender issues for years, for many, many years. So he's not on the same side of the the issues fundamentally, but he thinks that what's going on with transgender kids is, is horrific. That they, the, the legitimate number of cases that were used to come up were five or six a year. He now sees five or six a week. And it's, it's induced by social media and public school curriculum and pressure. That's where it's coming from. It is, it is not historically the kind of mental illness that would arise that would lead to gender dysphoria, the old stuff is gone. This is all purposefully created by people who, it's their belief to tear down God's creative order, and they're using this as a mechanism of doing it. And so um, I, I litigated a case in Michigan about nine years ago, I think it was now, where a little boy had uh, Ewing sarcoma, which is a cancer that grows alongside bones, not inside the bones. It's not, so it's not bone cancer exactly, but it grows alongside bones. Family doctor discovered it, went to Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They did surgery and removed all the cancer they could do that way. They gave him a round of chemotherapy. They, he had no cancer, according to the test, after the chemotherapy. And they wanted to do another round, and the little boy said, I want to just go to be with Jesus. I don't want to do more chemotherapy. And both the family doctor and the parents thought this little boy had lost the will to live, and that, that was more dangerous to him than the cancer. And so the family doctor said, you know, we can just wait. The, the people in the Grand Rapids Hospital didn't think so, and they filed child abuse uh, complaint with the state. The local child abuse authorities looked into it and said, these parents aren't abusing this kid. And the... Uh, they pushed the prosecutor. Prosecutor wouldn't prosecute them. They went to the state level and pulled some political strings, and the state hired a, a private attorney to criminally prosecute this family. I ended up defending the family in court in Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Have any of this is a really old movie, seen Anatomy of Murder with Jimmy Stewart? Anybody see that movie? One movie buff. Okay, two, three, four. Okay, all right. 
It was the same courtroom that Jimmy Stewart used in Anatomy Mirror. I sat, and it looks exactly the same. They preserved it. I sat in Jimmy Stewart's seat, and I went, well, well you know, we, you know. And so, um, um, but, you know, I argued based on a law that I helped write in Michigan, and I would encourage you all to make sure that you have a law like it that says this, the right of parents to direct the upbringing, care, and education of their child is a fundamental right. That's it. That is a key thing to say, and I'll explain why in just a few minutes. Um, and so, based on that law, I argued this. If it was clear that this little boy was sick, and, and it was clear that there was a treatment that was safe and effective, failure of a parent to give a child treatment that's gonna kill him, or you know, for a sickness that's gonna kill him, when there's a safe and effective treatment, that would be neglect. But we don't have any of those things. We don't have, it's not clear that he's sick, and they certainly don't have a, a, a treatment that's safe and effective. I had proven through the, their own doctor's mouths that this was experimental treatment, that it would, had not been proven to be safe and effective for juvenile Ewing sarcoma. And so, you know, so none of, it was gray zone. So I said, judge, in a gray zone case, who decides? Parents decide. And the judge agreed with us and ruled for, for the parents. And so, um, who decides disciplinary issues for children? Parents decide. Now, there are limits to that, obviously. You, you know, you, you can't, you know, chop off a child's hand because they stole from the refrigerator. There, you know, there are forms of abuse that, that are impermissible. You cannot discipline your child anyway, but reasonable, moderate spanking has never been held to be child abuse in this country by any ultimate court. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's been some rogue, low-level judges that have said such a thing, but it's never been held that way in any appellate court in, the, in this country. And so reasonable, moderate discipline, is, and, you know, I, I, did, I did a, uh, it didn't end up being a case, but it, it was headed that way, for parents that were being challenged for refusing to let their, girl, their daughter go to the junior prom. And she'd, she'd been messing up academically, and they said, no, you're grounded, We're, you know. And the, and, the, and the government intervened and wanted to take the child away because of that kind of, dis, you know, of grounding her. Um, and so it's, it's nonsense. So the parents need to be able to decide disciplinary issues as well. Now, those are kind of the context where this stuff arises, but the, the doctrine of parental rights came in the, in the 1920s in the Supreme Court of the United States, in the education context first. And there was a case in Nebraska, Meyer versus Nebraska, where parents were t not allowed to uh, uh, have their kids receive foreign language education um, before the eighth grade, and, or uh, until the ninth grade, actually. And uh, kids were being taught Bible stories in German in a Lutheran school, and the teacher was prosecuted for that. And the, and the, the Supreme Court of the United States got the, that decision right, but even more was the case from the 1920s in Pierce versus Society of Sisters. It was a year or so after the, the Meyer case. And in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, the Ku Klux Klan and the Scottish Rite Masons banded together to ban private schools in Oregon. Uh, the same thing that the left wants to do today, Martha Albertson Finneman at Emory Law School, Catherine Urocco, 
recently left being the dean back to being a professor at Northwestern University Law School. Catherine Ross, George Washington University. Um, um, Elizabeth Bartholet at Harvard Law School. These have all lined up and said, children's philosophical control of their child's education needs to be taken away from families and given to the government. Some of them want to ban all private schools. All of them want to ban parents being able to control the philosophy of their kids' education. So don't think this isn't going to arise again. The left is taking the same position the Ku Klux Klan took in the 1920s. And the Ku Klux Klan wanted to make everybody their version of true Americans and ban all private education to, and, and control the public schools to accomplish that. They, the Ku Klux Klan was stopped by the Supreme Court in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, and we needed to stop the left from doing the same thing today. And in that case, the Supreme Court said the fundamental theory of liberty upon which all governments in this union repose excludes any general power of the state to standardize its children by forcing them to accept instruction from public teachers only. The child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with a high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. Now, there's an international parallel to the Klan, and that's Adolf Hitler. You could also find the same thing in the Soviet Union, where they controlled public education as an indoctrination factory. They were clear. You know, they were open and above board. They wanted to control the education of the kids. And the whole world responded to Hitler's atrocities with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1949. And uh, I have an LLM in public international law from the University of London, and emphasis on treaty law and human rights law. And so I learned fancy terminology there. And I'm going to teach you one fancy terminology. It's called yada, a yada law. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a yada law. I mean, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to do the other thing. That's, it's, that's, that's a yada law. And, and so um, it is not a binding law. It is a statement of moral rightness. What should laws look like all over the world? And what they said, unanimously adopted by the UN, in response to Adolf Hitler in particular, was this. Parents have a prior right to determine the education of their children. And they have a right to use a schooling other than the government schools so that the moral education of their children was decided by parents. The worldview, in response to Hitler, the whole world got it right, is dangerous when government gets into the indoctrination business. And at a minimum, parents always ought to have an opt-out opportunity, say, we don't want this anymore. And so, I contend that in the public schools, you should still have control over the philosophical education. Now, I, I went to public school, you know, K through 12. My dad was a public school elementary principal. And uh, I graduated in 1969, which makes me a bit of a dinosaur to some, but I, I, I think there's two or three people in this room that might be as old as me. Um, but not many more than that. Um, but. Um, my public school wasn't perfectly neutral, but it was not an open indoctrination factory then. There, there was a, a form of, of neutrality that was generally what was going on. And I, I would say as a practical matter, my own worldview was shaped far more by my family and my church than my public school. I, I can't say I was totally not affected. 
but it was, it, it, the, the waiting was far more family oriented in those days. And so public schools don't have to be the indoctrination factories that they are today. And we went from that, where I was, to the, kind of the 80s, I would say, as a stopping point. It was a continuum, to be sure. By the 80s, it was what I called the great religion of hodgepodge, where they said that there, are no, there is no truth, and that all truth is the same. It's all relative. And that was a stopping point. I, I heard Francis Schaeffer speak in person one time. And what he said that I remember, quote, word for word, was this. Pluralism is only a temporary state in any society. Pluralism is a transitional period between one orthodoxy and another. And the whole thing of pluralism that we, we were hearing to, taught to us in the 1980s was, was a purposeful way to get us out of having a Christian worldview into where they can go where we are today into an actual open indoctrination system. It is not the same as even the, it's not the same of the 60s, I guarantee you. It is not the same of when I started litigating this stuff in the 80s. It is an open indoctrination faction. You will bow the knee or you will be harassed uh, or worse. And so that's what's going on in, in the schools today. We are violating these key principles of international human rights laws. I've already signaled to you earlier, I don't believe we use international human rights as a legal principle in this country. But when we're in violation of what the UN says, we're in the wrong place on this issue. When we're, we're, we're to the left of the UN? Good grief, what are we thinking about? Um, uh, we, we have joined the forces of open, obvious, historically proven, tyranny when we allow the government to be in the indoctrination business. And so um, we need to. <laughs> Biblically, of course, it's real, really pretty simple. Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render under God the things that are God. The, the heart, soul, and mind of man is in God's jurisdiction, not government's jurisdiction. That's why as a doctrinal matter, we believe in religious freedom. It's not mere toleration. Toleration means I'll put up with you, but I really don't like you. The Toleration Acts of William and Mary from the 1680s, you could differ from the Church of England in five areas. Not five of your choice, five of their choice. And you couldn't differ even on those five issues any old way you wanted. You could, it was like a toggle switch. There was a choice A and B on each of those five issues. And if you differed in those five ways, you were okay. Otherwise, you were persecuted. Uh, and you still had to pay your tithes to the Church of England. You couldn't get married anyplace officially besides the Church of England. That's what toleration is. Toleration is not the same as liberty. It's because they wanted to control you, and that's what we're going on. When we hear people preaching about toleration, it's dangerous. I hope that no Christian, I hope no legislator here is tolerant. All right, folks, quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back to pick up the conclusion of Mike Ferris's presentation at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation. 
about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall Builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios to events that are already going on. And there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. As the American War for Independence began, the president of Yale was the Reverend Naftali Daggett. When New Haven, the home of Yale, came under attack, about 100 citizens rushed out to meet the British. The Reverend Daggett galloped by them on horseback, his clerical robes flowing behind him in the wind, and he took up a solitary position atop a hill. The 2,500 British soon put the townsfolk to flight, but the Reverend Daggett continued to stand alone, firing down on the advancing troops. A British officer confronted him. What are you doing there, you old fool? If I let you go, will you ever fire again on the troops of his majesty? Nothing more likely was the preacher's reply. America's early pastors personally confronted danger and courageously led their communities. For more information on Pastor Daggett and other colonial patriots, go to wallbuilders.com. We're back on Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us. Let's jump right back in with Mike Ferris at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Tolerant falls beneath our standards in two ways. On a personal level, toleration means, again, I don't really like you, but I'm going to put up with you. We're told to love people. Love is a much higher standard than tolerance. You know, we are told to love our neighbor. We're told to love the people that spitefully use us. We're told to love everybody, and that's a much higher standard. From a legal perspective, liberty is a much higher standard than tolerance. Liberty in this zone means government has no jurisdiction whatsoever over the heart, soul, and mind of man. And it's not that, and we should, that's why we believe in religious liberty for everybody, because if government gets good jurisdiction over the heart, soul, and minds of Muslims, they got jurisdiction over me. And they have no jurisdiction. This is God's jurisdiction, not man's jurisdiction. And the heart, soul, and mind. The same thing is true of parents. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. God has given children to parents, not to government. And so we need to render unto God and to the, where God has directed jurisdiction and not to where government wants to do it. So uh, we need to stand for the rights of all parents, even parents we don't, we don't like and don't agree with. That. When I led Homeschool Legal Defense Association for over 30 years, we defended all parents that wanted to homeschool. We, it was a Christian organization. All of our staff was Christian. All of our board was Christian. We, you know, openly, abundantly, clearly Christian, but we stood for every parent. I defended Jehovah Witnesses. I defended people I don't agree with doctrinally at all, uh, you know, one, one way or another. And uh, one lady thought she believed in the cross between Zen Buddhism and Winnie the Pooh. I didn't understand it, but I, I didn't defend her on religious freedom grounds. I defended her on parental rights grounds. And so um, it is uh, incredibly important for us to stand for the rights of all parents, even those that we don't agree with. 
Um, because when they can take away your rights, their rights, we, they can take away everybody's rights. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of a Supreme Court primer uh, really quickly here. Uh, the Supreme Court in a case called Troxel versus Granville, uh, by the way, uh, some of you that are old enough to, to remember actual good music, this, the, the song, I'm Mr. Blue, was sang by a group called the Fleetwoods. Uh, Gary Troxel, in this case, was the lead singer of the Fleetwoods. Uh, Troxel versus Granville was a case where Gary Troxel, the singer's son, uh, was in a long-term unmarried relationship with a woman. They had kids. Uh, his son committed suicide. Uh, the woman got remarried, or got married, actually, and uh, her, her kids were adopted by her new husband, and uh, she was letting the grandparents visit, but they wanted more visitation than she was permitting. She, she wasn't cutting them off. She just, they were just disagreeing, and she didn't like everything that was going on in the, in the grandparents' home and said, you know, no, this is enough, and they took her to court, and uh, the... Uh, she won in the Supreme Court of Washington, but the, the, the other side appealed. The Supreme Court of the United States took the case. The Supreme Court of Washington, you know, of course this is, you know, many years ago now, got it right. They said that parents make these decisions, period. It, it was a really good to state Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court of the United States got it and messed it all up. There was a six-way split in the case. There was not a majority. There was a four-judge plurality that said, well, traditionally we treated parental rights as a fundamental right. But in this case, we're going to make a case-by-case a, a -case decision-making. And it has thrown everything into disarray. Only one justice on the court, Justice Thomas, said that parental rights were a fundamental right and applied the traditional fundamental rights standard. And so that requires me to teach you the difference between fundamental and non-fundamental rights. The Supreme Court made this distinction up, out of thin air. It doesn't exist in the Constitution. The Founding Fathers would be aghast to learn that freedom of speech is more highly regarded than property rights. Freedom of speech, fundamental right. Property rights, a non-fundamental right. That's not the way they intended it. They'd say property rights are just as fundamental as freedom of speech. Do I want to, did they want to censor the New York Times? No. Did they want the government to be able to run over your property rights? No. They were all, all of our rights should be fundamental. Uh, under the correct rubric, but, but we're, we're living in a world where this is what the Supreme Court has done. Fundamental rights, non-fundamental rights. Fundamental rights, the, the assumption is there's a, a constitutional presumption that the government touches, burdens is the technical term, your, any right that's fundamental in character, the burden is on the government to ever justify such a thing. And it's a very strict burden. Wisconsin versus Yoder, the Amish didn't want to send their kids to public schools after the eighth grade. And the Supreme Court said the compulsory attendance failed under the fundamental rights analysis as applied to the Amish, because the Amish were able to demonstrate that their kids were literate and self-sufficient without going to the public school after the eighth grade. And so even something as important as compulsory education can be stricken down in that, in that kind of context when there's a fundamental right at stake. So, it's a good standard. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not historically grounded, but it's a good standard functionally. Non-fundamental rights on the other side, the burden's all on you. And if the government has a, a shadow of an excuse, if it's rationally related to a legitimate state interest, the government can override your non-fundamental right. And so whether their parents' rights 
are fundamental or non-fundamental is a big deal. And ADF is working. Our goal in this area is to get the Supreme Court to reverse uh, the, well, actually, it's clarified since it was a six-judge, six-way split, to clarify the Troxel case and reinstate the historical standard, the, the peer standard, the Yoder standard, that parental rights are a fundamental right. And, but in the meantime, state legislatures, as I signaled earlier, can do a lot of good by simply enacting a one-sentence law that says the right of parents to direct the upbringing and education of their children and care of their children is a fundamental right. Now, you can put a second sentence in and put a little enforcement provision in if you want, but that's a really important principle to, to establish. Three really quick reasons why we must protect parental rights. One, it's best for kids. It really is best for kids, and I, I, I don't have time, but I know that you know that that's true. Second, it's a bulwark against statism. If children get their most important hours of the day from the government, they're wired for life to think, my needs are gonna be supplied to me by the government. And so I've told home education parents, it's true of private school parents for years, but the philosophy needs to be in every kid's. You don't get your needs from the government, God provides for our needs. And so, um, but, Keeping parents' rights fresh is a bulwark against statism. Um, third, and finally, it's essential for the freedom of our country in the long run. The Glenn Youngkin race turned around because of parental rights. Uh, Tanner Cross, who's an ADF client, goes to our church. He called me right afterwards. He's in a home Bible study with a girl I've known since she's 10 years old. I mean, she's 40, but she's still a girl. Uh, actually, she's 45. Um, still a girl to me. But um, she gave him my, my cell phone number, and we defended uh, Tanner, and that whole thing blew up, and Glenn Youngkin got elected. Even um, the vast majority of the middle-of-the-road folks in this country believe that parents have more say than what the Democrats are willing to, to yield. And so it's essential for our country. But here's the other reason it's really essential for the long term. I saw, uh, uh, I tried to get the meme to be able to show you today, but I wasn't able to find it on the internet last night. I saw it yesterday afternoon in a, in a family's office here in Cisco, Texas. And it was by Prager University, and it showed the voting map from this year's congressional elections on state by state on the age group 18 to 29. The map is 100% blue. Every state, the 18 to 20-year-olds voted blue. 18 to 29-year-olds voted blue. That is the result of the indoctrination factories that are going on. You all have authority over those. You need to get them to stop. If we're going to preserve the freedom of this country, we have to recover the ability of parents to control the worldview development of their children. So thank you for working on that. God bless you. I appreciate all that you do for our country. All right, folks, that was the conclusion of Mike Fair speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. We're going to have several more of these programs in the, in the coming weeks. There were a lot of great speakers at the conference this year, and we want to share that with you, our listeners, here on Wall Builders as much as possible. So thanks so much for listening. Grab that program today at our website and yesterday, of course, at 
uh, combined as the entire presentation from Mike and share that with your friends and family. Send it out. Be a force multiplier and help us encourage people to save this constitutional republic. Thanks so much for listening to Wobble. We stand undivided.